Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. The Amusement Park. A glittery place of confections and thrilling rides. But all that glimmers is not gold. And many an amusement park has a dark history of murder, mayhem, and debauchery. Many end up abandoned, thought to be cursed and haunted by their sinister past. The carousels and ferris wheels that once delighted, now vine-covered and rusting into the earth. Now a place of amusement, only for the malevolent spirits and evil specters that haunt them. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. Secure yourself in the murder coaster as we take a ride exploring the shadowy dark side of haunted and abandoned amusement parks. Let's begin. Every abandoned place is haunted in one way or another, if not by the ghosts of the dead, then by the artifacts left behind, the rotten, moldering, and rusting visage of what it once was, the decaying buildings, crumbling walls, and no abandoned place looks as eerie and forlorn as the abandoned amusement park, places once filled with raucous laughter and thrilling cries of merriment. Places once glowing in neon and electric lights, now silent and dark as nature stretches her viney arms out to reclaim it. The Pripyat Amusement Park in the Ukraine was never used at all, but abandoned before its opening day because of radiation from the nearby Chernobyl nuclear reactor disaster. The Ferris wheel still stands forlorn and lonely amidst encroaching trees, the bumper car track now overgrown. It is a place literally haunted by the past, haunted by the invisible radiation lurking like restless spirits. In New Orleans, there sits a Six Flags amusement park that was abandoned after being devastated in Hurricane Katrina. The shuttered gates are rusted now, the buildings smashed and covered in graffiti. Brush grows up through the tracks of the roller coasters. This place is haunted by the storm that flooded it and is quiet now besides the snakes and alligators who slither through the walkways where grinning children once ate cotton candy and popcorn. Often amusement parks are considered spooky and scary because of the larger than life designs the distorted, leering clown faces, the haunted houses and mirror mazes. We can see this in horror movies like Fun House, Terrifier 2, and the cult classic Carnival of Lost Souls. But sometimes it's the juxtaposition of the bright and cheerful with dark and evil situations. I'm sure many of our listeners remember The Omen, where Damien's nanny hangs herself during the carnival. The juxtaposition of the gleeful children and laughing clown with the shocking death as she plummets to her demise and the noose grows tight. It's all for you, Damien. It's all for you. And if there's an amusement park 
where the jovial festivity and fun was juxtaposed with an extremely dark and sinister event. Surely, it is the Rocky Point Amusement Park. Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you Part 1, Rocky Point Park, A Matter of Evil Intent. Situated along the shore between Connemacut Point and Warwick Necklight in Rhode Island, the Rocky Point Amusement Park was renowned in the late 1800s for its Spanish Fandango roller coaster, carousel, and its 60-foot Ferris wheel where you could look out over the Narragansett Bay. Visitors poured in from all over the country to see the famed trapeze artist, Madame Zoe, and eat their world-famous clam cakes and sumptuous seafood to feast on lobsters at only 25 cents a pop. That's a good deal. It is. At the time, Rhode Island was the most popular resort area in all of New England, and Rocky Point was the golden jewel. In 1877, President Rutherford Hayes himself visited Rocky Point, and 250 bushels of clams were prepared, the largest clam bake the world had ever seen. But today, the land is barren, with only a few remnants that point back to its halcyon days. From the time of its opening in 1847 to the time of its closing in 1995, the park withstood hurricanes, fires, strange deaths, suicide, and even murder, most savage and cruel. So, of course, urban myths of all sorts abound over the once famous park. It is said a group of gypsy fortune tellers once worked in the park, and they were inexplicably fired. And as they left, disgruntled and angry, they bestowed a curse upon it. Others claim it is situated atop a Native American burial ground. Some even say that ancient magical stones in the famous caves that line the shore were stolen by pirates, dooming the land. The creepy Viking statue that sat before the House of Horrors was said to be a spiritual protector of the park and would damn anyone who abused the grounds. It said Log 13 on the flume ride was haunted, as was the Skyliner. People even claim a woman was decapitated on the freefall, though this appears to be easily disproven when researched. While locals scoff at most of these urban legends and myths, of hauntings and curses, explaining them away as silly rumors spread by teenagers with no basis in fact. What is certain is that there have been a number of very strange deaths, including an infamous and grisly murder. And it's with this act of cruel homicide, dear listeners and fellow freaks, that our story begins. Frank Howard Sheffield was born in Woodstock, Connecticut on August 9, 1850. He was the son of a preacher and grew up listening to his father's sermons. The family moved often, but eventually settled down in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Frank, a bright young lad, briefly considered becoming a minister himself, but then decided against it and became the principal at East Greenwich School. Frank met and fell deeply in love with Mary Ann Hill and the two married in December 
1876. The happily married couple moved to Mystic, Connecticut to be closer to Marianne's parents, moving in right next door to them for a while. Frank procured a job as principal of Palmer Street School, and they had a son in 1880 named Mason Howard. All was perfect contentment until a freak accident occurred. One day, Frank was ringing the large school bell, as was part of his duties as principal, when somehow the massive brass bell struck him right in the head, knocking him out cold. After this, Frank suffered severe headaches and even seizures. It also seemed to change him in some deep and fundamental way, for friends and family say he was never the same again. Then, on January 31st, 1888, Marianne gave birth to their second child, a girl this time, named Maggie. But what should have been a joyous moment was marred by tragedy. For during the birth, the membranes lining Mary's pelvic wall hemorrhaged. The inflammation became so severe that it caused her lungs to swell, and she suffocated and died just one week later at the age of 33. Frank was devastated, the love of his life gone, suffering from seizures and incapacitating headaches, unable to think straight, he decided to send the children off. He sent his son to live with Mary Ann's parents and sent his baby daughter to Rhode Island to be raised by his parents. He eventually married again to Nancy Armida, and they had a daughter named Sarah Elizabeth and a son named Amos Thompson. But Frank, well, Frank was a changed man. He denounced God and became an atheist, which shocked and hurt his preacher father. His father would later claim Frank was possessed by a demon. He was fired from his job as principal and took up work doing the books for a railroad station, but was fired from this job as well. Because of his raging headaches, he couldn't keep the freight accounts straight. Frank fell into the habit of using opium as a pain reliever for his headaches. At the time, opium was legal, and opium kits were sold over the counter, which included a needle, syringe, and mixing vessel. Struggling with his mental health, at one point Frank attempted suicide by overdosing on laudanum, a powerful opium tincture. Frank's doctor, John Howard Morgan, recommended a new miracle drug that was touted by Sigmund Freud called cocaine. In 1884, Freud had published a book on the wonder drug and the wonderful effects cocaine had on him personally. The book, entitled On Coca, touted cocaine as a sure-fire cure for opium addiction. Frank also confided in his doctor that he was regularly having strange impulses to find and kill his daughter Maggie. He felt like a failure for not being able to care for her, both physically and financially. She was also somehow tied up in his mind with his beloved dead wife, Mary Ann. He thought they should be together. But Frank's doctor was sure this new wonder drug, cocaine, would cure him of both his morbid thoughts and his opium dependency. Cocaine could be bought right over the counter and was in everything from cough drops to toothache powders. It was even being put into a new soda elixir named Coca-Cola that was a national sensation. 
The cocaine caused Frank to suffer from erysipelas, an infection in the back of the nose and throat that spread to the lymphatic vessels, causing lymph node swelling, chills, fever, and distorted facial expressions. It was a painful disease that is said to cause a distorted state of mind as well. Frank began to behave very erratically, blacking out and waking up hundreds of miles away with no idea how he got there. On August 27th, 1893, a Sunday, Frank got up and told his wife he was going to the grocery store. She told him to hurry for breakfast will be done soon, and she didn't want it to get cold. But he never returned. Instead, he boarded a train for Attleboro, Rhode Island, where his daughter was living with his parents. Frank's parents were staying with his sister at the time, a type of family vacation. Frank showed up at his sister's house, completely disheveled and out of sorts. He was unshaven, his clothes were rumpled and stained, and he had a weird look to his eyes. He said he had come to take his daughter home. Disturbed by his appearance and weird behavior, they asked him to lie down and take a nap, saying he obviously needed some rest. But he insisted he wanted his daughter, repeating over and over, I've come to take my daughter home. He was acting desperate and staring at the little girl so oddly, she even asked him, why are you looking at me like that? They finally convinced Frank to take a nap. Afterwards, they then had a large dinner and turned in for the night. In the morning, Frank quietly slunk from his bed, took his daughter, and crept away. When the family realized Frank and Maggie were gone, they immediately formed a search party and informed the police, scouring the area. Meanwhile, Frank and Maggie boarded a trolley to Providence, then took the Bay Queen steamer to Rocky Point Amusement Park so he could have some of their famous clam cakes. In the dining hall, where they immediately went to get these famous clam cakes, the waiters all noticed that something was off about Frank. Not only was he disheveled, but he had a blank gaze to his eyes and sat staring off into nothingness, ignoring his little daughter who prattled on beside him. Then Frank took his five-year-old daughter, Maggie, by the hand and led her through the massive crowd past the carousels and flying swings, the roller coaster and train rides, the cymbal-clapping monkeys, and famed trapeze artist Madame Zoe, to the cliffs by the shore of the Narragansett Bay. As the water lapped the slippery rocks, Maggie looked up at her father and asked if he had a handkerchief she might use to fashion into a doll. And Frank, the eerie music of a carnival pipe organ droning in the distance, picked up a large rock and brought it down on the little girl's head. The blow crushed the girl's skull, opening a hole where her brain swelled and protruded out. She crumbled to the dark rocks. A young man named Arthur Skiron heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the area of the cliffs and ran to see what had happened. Frank came out from behind a ledge, briefly glanced at him, and kept on walking without uttering a single word. Arthur continued on to where his horror, he saw a little girl in a frilly dress lying among the rocks, blood pooling around her still body. Arthur raced for help, summoning the park manager and the girl 
who was miraculously still alive, was carried to the theater where a doctor was called. But by the time medical help arrived, it was too late, and little Maggie was dead. Frank strode out of the park and into town, where he approached a stranger, stating, I have killed my child. I want to be turned over to an officer. The man stood there in shock as Frank went on talking. Why I did it, I do not know. I did not know that I had done anything until I had killed her. I did not know I had struck her until I saw the blood. At this point, Frank began to shake and shudder uncontrollably. Once in police custody, Frank said he had to leave. He had to go see his little boy, which is terrifying, for he obviously planned on bringing his little boy home as well. He then said he was expecting a visit from his dead wife, Marianne, but not to let her near him because he might go violently insane at the sight of her. He then begged to be shot. The trial of Frank Sheffield commenced on October 9th, 1893, at the Kent County Courthouse on 127 Main Street, East Greenwich, Rhode Island, which still stands today. The law stated a person must possess evil intent during the committal of a crime in order to be found guilty, and a diseased or defective mind has not capacity to realize their actions. So Frank pled not guilty by reason of insanity, the defense resting on the matter of evil intent. Dr. George F. Keene of the Rhode Island State Hospital for the Insane conducted a number of tests on Frank and testified at the trial that he was undoubtedly insane. And it took the jury only eight minutes to return their verdict not guilty by reason of insanity. But Frank didn't go free. Instead, he was sent to the Rhode Island State Hospital for the Insane in Cranston, a sprawling, gothic, brick-and-stone building. He'd stay there until his death on March 14, 1901. He died of tuberculosis. He was buried in Mystic, Connecticut, where his grave still remains to this day. It makes you wonder what was worse prison or an insane asylum in the 1890s yeah uh, i could uh, i could make a make an educated guess <laughs> but far from the murder tainting the amusement park the largest crowd ever gathered there just shortly later because a brand new holiday had just been created and added to the calendar labor day a day of merriment to celebrate the working man. 10,000 Rhode Islanders gathered to march through the streets before gathering on wharves and riding steamboats out to Rocky Point Amusement Park to eat the world-famous clam cakes and ride the Ferris wheel and see those famous cymbal-clapping monkeys. Rocky Point went on, though many tragedies and dark events plagued it. In 1905, a saloon keeper from Patterson, New Jersey, named Fred Brumel, visited the park, found a secluded area, put a gun to his head, and squeezed the trigger, killing himself. No one knows why. He was married with a 15-year-old son. On July 16, 1911, 
a carpenter named Hiram Bangs decided to, strangely enough, take a nap in the tall grass of the parking lot. He was subsequently run over and killed, his chest crushed by the rear wheels. Just the next year, Thomas Martin and three of his friends, all from Taunton, Massachusetts, visited the park. As Thomas was parking his car by the iron fence that overlooked the cliffs, backing up into the space, he accidentally hit the throttle. The car tore through the fence and catapulted off the cliff, flipping over and over as it plummeted to the rocky shore below. All four men were thrown from the vehicle. Miraculously, three of them walked away with relatively minor injuries, but one, Thomas Brady, was pinned beneath the vehicle and crushed. In 1930, the park was accused of discrimination for barring African-Americans from bathing and swimming, even though thousands of African-Americans gather there every August 1st to celebrate the freedom of West Indian slaves by England. And in a despicable act of prejudice, park officials even drained the pool for the event that year so that they were unable to swim. Ugh assholes. <laughs> right. In 1938, a massive hurricane with wind speeds of 160 miles per hour whipped through, killing 600 Rhode Islanders and causing $300 million in damage to the park. The Wildcat and the Flying Turns ride were obliterated, the midway gone, and the famous dining hall swept into the bay and washed out to the ocean. Later, in an amusing episode, six of the famous cymbal-playing monkeys escaped and taunted handlers for months, swinging just beyond their reach as they tried to return them to captivity, which I love. Go, you crazy monkeys, go. <laughs> I had never heard that before. That's great. That's fantastic. Uh, so the park was refurbished in 1945, but struggled. And in 1953, management was forced to sell off several of its rides. In 1954, another hurricane came through, destroying much of the renovations. In 1959, the fortune teller Madame Tina's crystal ball mysteriously disappeared, which the media had fun with in that, well, she hadn't foreseen the event. But it also harkened back to that old myth of the gypsy curse. But by 1966, it was back to its former glory. Still famous for the clam cakes Frank had eaten there before murdering his daughter 70 years earlier. Which, I have to admit, from photographs, these clam cakes, they really do look absolutely delicious. My mouth was watering during uh, a lot of this research. Have you ever eaten these clam cakes or clam cakes out there in Rhode Island? Oh, God, yeah. I was just going to ask you, have you not ever had Rhode Island clam cakes? Um, no. We, we eat them all the time. They're great. Oh, I could man. go get some right now. <laughs> Jealous. Um, I would say I would like, you know, there's like no way you, the one thing about clam cakes, you have to eat them like right out of the fry later. So there's no way to like get them to you. You're going right. to have to come to Rhode right. Island and, uh, yeah. One of these days. Gotta, they are delicious. They're, uh, a, definitely a staple. I don't know. You know, the, we have the Rhode Island clam chowder, Rhode Island clam cakes and like lobster rolls. That's our thing. Oh, all right, so um, moving away from lobster rolls and back to death, <laughs> there were more deaths as well. In 1967, a man mysteriously drowned in the swimming pool. 
Just two years later, in September of 1969, a maintenance man was killed repairing a cable guard pulley on the Skyliner when the ride inexplicably started up and he was crushed between the wheel and the base of the ride. By 1977, Rocky Point was the second oldest American amusement park in existence, and Ronald Reagan visited and spoke there. Although arson destroyed concession and game stands in 1980, the 80s saw a boom as new roller coasters were installed, the corkscrew, which cost $2 million, and the cyclone, as well as the freefall, which was interestingly bought from another park after seriously injuring two teenagers. Perhaps this injury was the cause of the rumor of a woman being decapitated. But the park struggled in the 90s, and in 1996, after numerous loan defaults, the Rocky Point Amusement Park was officially closed, and all the rides and equipment were auctioned off. On April 17th, the gates were locked shut, cold rain spitting down from the clouds. The once beautiful resort was overgrown with weeds, bushes, strangled by vines, the bones of the old rides rusted and covered in graffiti. It was a place that had been the most sought-out destination in New England, where countless joyful memories were made. A place where Janis Joplin, REO Speedwagon, Pearl Jam, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers played. It was also the place where a little girl spent her last frightened moments on this earth, by the dark water of the Narragansett Bay and the haunting sounds of a barrel organ. In autumn of 2004, the Seekonk Wapanog tribe filed a lawsuit claiming many areas of Rhode Island, including 34 acres of the abandoned park, belonged to them because of a 1661 deed from the King of England giving them the land. But the court ruled that the claim could not be filed due to the Land Settlement Act of 1978, whereby 1,800 acres of land were conveyed to the Narragansett tribe under the stipulations that no other Indian land claims could be made against the state or federal government for lost use of Aboriginal land. But the Wapanog argued that it wasn't Aboriginal land. It was English land transferred to them by the king. Furthermore, it was unconstitutional for the Wapanogs to suffer the loss based on a deal made with the Narragansetts, who were a completely different tribe. But the court wouldn't budge, and the land remained in state hands. And we should probably point out that while the Wampanoag did in-depth research into the history of the land while filing their claim, they never stated the land had been a sacred burial ground, which seems to dispel that myth, unlike the next amusement park we're going to get to. But on a side note, it was the natives who taught the Europeans to dig for clams at low tide and then prepare a clam bake. And for those of you who are curious about just what a clam bake is, and no, I'm not talking about smoking a joint in your car with the windows rolled up. <laughs> <laughs> a clam bake is achieved by digging deep pits into the ground along the seashore. The pits are lined with rocks and large fires set inside. Once the fires have died down and the rocks are smoldering hot, the ashes raked out. Seaweed soaked in ocean water is layered down. Then lobsters are placed, then more seaweed, then sweet corn and potatoes, then more seaweed before it's finally topped with clams and more seaweed. 
The clams and vegetables are finished first, so they're eaten while the lobsters continue to steam. Rocky Point was famous for its clam bakes, and as we mentioned, holds the world's record for the largest clam bake ever. Today, the land where Rocky Point Amusement Park once stood has been converted into a public park, with open fields and a walking path along the shore of the bay. Little of the past remains, besides the upper and lower stations for the Skyliner ride, the ruins of an ancient water tank, and a large arch. While the urban myths of Rocky Point are often chided by locals, who choose to fondly remember it, as a wonderful part of their childhoods, no one doubts the horrors of the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park, wildly considered to be one of the most haunted places on the face of the planet, if you believe in that kind of thing. And if you don't, maybe this story will change your mind. Ladies and gentlemen, part two, the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Murder, graves, and circular swings. In order to tell the tale of the abandoned Lake Shawnee Amusement Park, we need to step deep into the past, to before the Revolutionary War, to the first European settlers of the United States. In 1774, the royal governor of West Virginia, Lord Dunmore, bestowed a grant to one Mitchell Clay for 800 acres of land on both sides of the Bluestone Creek in what was then known as Cloverbottom, Virginia, but would today be Mercer County, West Virginia. This is the land that would later become the infamous Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Mitchell Clay received this grant for his participation in Dunmore's War. The grant stipulated Clay was required to take possession of the land and clear as much per year as well as render so much ground rent per year to the King of Great Britain. This grant still exists and is on file in the clerk's office of the Mercer County Courthouse. As Mitchell Clay was the assignee of Lieutenant John Draper, he was required to mm, give a female slave and her children to Lieutenant Drapper in order to execute a bill of sale for the land. Well, that is despicable. Uh, Mitchell Clay was descended Slightly from happy some... ending coming up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Mitchell Clay was descended from some of the very first English settlers in North America. His great-grandfather, Captain John Clay, had left England on the ship to the Treasurer in 1613 to colonize Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement in North America. Mitchell moved onto the land in Cloverbottom with his wife, Phoebe. They built a farmhouse, worked the land, and had 14 children, seven sons, and seven daughters. The land had originally been a part of the Shawnee tribe's territory, and it was actually Dunmar's war against the natives that had put the land in Virginian hands. Nevertheless, the Shawnees warned the Clay family that this was their land, and the Clay family should not be settling there. The warnings were ominous and strange, especially as the Shawnee hadn't been using the land at all. Mitchell ignored their warnings. No doubt he harbored ill will towards the natives, as his father had been killed by a native while hunting. Also, he had earned the land fighting in the war that had led the Shawnee to surrender their hunting rights south of Ohio and relocate west of the Ohio River. 
Furthermore, it was stipulated in the deed that the land had to be constantly worked and cleared or he would forfeit and lose it. So Mitchell goes on working the land with his wife and 14 children, ignoring the warnings. In August of 1783, Mitchell Clay goes out hunting. He asks his sons, Bartley and Ezekiel, to build a fence around their wheat while he's gone, which they proceeded to do. His daughter Tabitha was close by doing the wash in the river with the younger girls. And it's at this moment that 11 Shawnee warriors who had been stalking the land from the riverbed attacked the homestead, shooting and killing Bartley and taking Ezekiel captive. Tabitha, washing clothes in the river with her younger sister, heard the shot and, gathering up the younger girls, sprinted for their farmhouse. But the path went right past the field of grain where Bartley and Ezekiel had been working, and she runs right into a Shawnee attempting to scalp her brother. A fighter, Tabitha rushed to defend her brother and also provide a distraction so her younger sisters could escape. Tabitha went to grab the knife from the native's hands. A struggle ensued and she was viciously stabbed to death. It's said she was stabbed so brutally so many times that she was basically hacked into pieces. It just so happens that a neighbor named Ligon Blankenship was visiting the homestead at this time. Hearing the gunshot and the commotion, Ligon Blankenship and Phoebe looked out into the field where they see Tabitha struggling with the Shawnee warrior. Phoebe begs Ligon to shoot the native, but Ligon only had ammunition for a single shot and there were 11 Shawnee, so he doesn't shoot and instead stands guard in front of the farmhouse, his rifle raised. Phoebe watches in horror from the doorway as the natives scalp Bartley and Tabitha and then ride off with Ezekiel as their captive, pleading with Blankenship to do something. Please, she begs, rescue my son. Instead, Ligon waits for the natives to depart, and then he leaves himself. This would earn the Blankenship clan a reputation as cowards in the area, a stigma that would not go away. Nearly 200 years later, in 1977, there would be a newspaper article about the massacre, declaring, quote, This cowardly behavior of Blankenship had been carried down to him from generation to generation, and perhaps will be until the end of time. End quote. Hysterical. Phoebe runs out, drags the scalped and bloody corpses of her children, Bartley and Tabitha, into the house where she lies them in their beds. She then gathers the other 11 children, and they take off for their closest neighbor, John Bailey, who resides six miles away. Meanwhile, Mitchell Clay returns home from hunting. He sees the chaos of the massacre and the bloody scalped corpses of two of his children in their beds and assumes the entire family is dead or kidnapped. He too runs to John Bailey's, undoubtedly flooded with relief to find his wife and 11 other children alive and well. But Ezekiel was gone, kidnapped by the Shawnee. So Mitchell gathers a posse led by Captain Matthew Farley and they go on the hunt to rescue the kidnapped Ezekiel and serve justice on the Shawnee warriors. They manage to overtake the Shawnee in Boone County, and a skirmish ensues. Several of the natives are killed, but the rest escape, with their captive Ezekiel, crossing over the Ohio River and into Indian territory. The posse trail the natives to the Indian town, 
of Chillicothe, Ohio, but they are too late. The Shawnee had burned Ezekiel alive at the stake. He was only 16 years old. The chief of the Shawnee tribe is sympathetic, however. He lets Mitchell take Ezekiel's burnt remains back to Virginia and even loans him a horse to carry the body. Mitchell Clay returns to Clover Bottom with what remained of his son, who is said to be buried there, but where is not known, while the graves of Tabitha and Bartley are still clearly marked with stone memorials to this day. And just to display the brutality on both sides of this conflict, Mitchell cut strips of skin from the backs of the Shawnee who he'd killed in the Boone County skirmish. These were made into razor strops, you know, those pieces of leather you sharpen a razor with. And they were passed down in the family as heirlooms for generations. Good God, that's <laughs> gruesome. Yeah. <sighs> Distraught and devastated, Phoebe never returned to the farm. Mitchell Clay died in 1812. He left the land to the husband of his daughter, Rebecca, one Colonel George and Pyrrhus. And in a strange twist of fate, remember that female slave Clave had given to Lieutenant Dapper as payment? Well, she sued for her freedom and she received it. Good on her. It's actually the only positive thing in the story, a small silver lining. Yes, good God. <laughs> but with her freedom, the original bill of sale was now void. So the estate of Lieutenant Drapper sued, causing Rebecca and Colonel Pierce to actually go bankrupt and lose the land. On June 20th of 1863, Clover Bottom became part of the new state of West Virginia. The state of West Virginia was formed when, during the Civil War, they separated from Confederate Virginia and joined the Union, fighting for the North and agreeing to the abolition of slavery and the 13th Amendment. By 1927, coal mining is exploding in Mercer County, West Virginia, and families are pouring into the area to cash in on this huge coal boom. Sensing a great opportunity, when Conley Snidow buys up all the land that had once been known as Clover Bottom and the ill-fated homestead of the Clay family to put in an amusement park. He wanted to give the hardworking coal miners and families a place to relax and enjoy some wholesome entertainment, as well as make a few bucks off land barons and coal tycoons with his gambling hall and racetrack. He erects a giant circular swing ride where patrons sit on wooden planks attached to chains that fan out as the ride spins round and round. He puts in a Ferris wheel, dance halls, as well as gambling halls and a racetrack. He puts in swimming pools complete with an array of diving boards and a water slide into a mammoth man-made pond, renting wool bathing suits for 15 cents. He names this forlorn place of doom the Shawnee Lake Amusement Park. If a place can be cursed, surely the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park is one of them, for many, many mysterious deaths would ensue, and a tragic and haunting history would reveal itself buried there beneath the earth. James Craft Belcher 
was one of Mitchell Clay's great-grandchildren and had actually grown up on the property. He was also an abusive, adulterous drunk. He was married but was having an affair with a 19-year-old named Myrtle Taylor. I I love that name, Myrtle. It's a good one, for sure. On May 11th, 1934, James walked into the dining hall to find his mistress, Myrtle, having dinner with another man. He grew irate with jealousy and stormed over to the table to confront his lover. He violently pulls her up, marching her out of the dining hall, and forces her into his car, basically abducting her. Taking her out onto a lonely stretch of road outside the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Where he shoots her in the head twice. But then, seeing his young paramour drenched in blood, he is suddenly filled with remorse and wondering what he'd done. He speeds her away to the hospital in the hopes that she might live. But no such luck for James, and Myrtle died. James was sent to prison, where he would remain until he died of old age in 1993. Six more deaths soon follow. Conley Snado, the park's owner, lived in a hotel on the park with his family. One day, his three-year-old daughter, Eloise, went playfully running to the elevator, joyfully trying to jump in, only to be crushed between the floor and the door as the elevator car moved upward. An 11-year-old boy, swimming in the man-made pond, swam down to the bottom, curiously exploring, and had his sleeve caught in the drain. He struggled to free himself, but it was fruitless, and he drowned. Afterwards, the pond was filled with sand. But that wouldn't be the only drowning. Another little boy, Wayne Harmon, only six years old, mysteriously drowned in a shallow lake on the property. His mother and brothers were right there, but no one seemed to notice him missing until somebody brushed up against his cold, clammy corpse in the murky water. A gambler in the poker hall was murdered over a big win. And then, in 1966, one of the most horrific and infamous deaths would occur. A little girl in a ruffled pink dress was riding the giant circular swings. As the contraptions spun and the swings fanned out, a delivery truck turning around momentarily backed up into the path of the swings. A little girl's head smashed into the edge of the truck, gruesomely killing her and sending an arc of blood out, drenching the entire area in gore as the swing swung round and round. It was at this point that Conley Snaidu had had enough. There had been too many strange deaths, including that of his own daughter, and in 1966, the park was closed, the ride sold off. It sat abandoned for nearly two decades, until in 1985, Gaylord White, a former employee and now local businessman, purchased it with a dream of restoring it back to its former glory. He envisioned the place to be as it had looked in its heyday and sought out the same type of large circular swing ride that had once been such an attraction for the park. He found a vintage carnival ride dealer in New Jersey who had just such a set of swings, completely refurbished. So he bought them and had them set up in the same spot where the old ones had resided. Curious about the history of his new swings, he looked up the serial numbers. They were the same exact swings. 
the same swings that little girl had been riding when her head was crushed. The deadly swings had returned to the park. Can you fucking believe that shit? It's so seriously spooky. Like, thinking about it, it makes my hair stand on end. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, it's like something out of a movie. It's it unreal. Is. Gaylord added paddle boats, a Ferris wheel, bumper cars, performance stages, and in the summer of 1987, the park was grandly reopened, hoping to attract as many visitors as possible. He charged only $1 to get in. While the crowds turned out, the insurance company raised the rates to an unsustainable rate. Yeah. How much would an insurance company charge for a legitimately haunted amusement park known for uh, killing children? Yeah, it's like you, the <laughs> insurance company must have thought that was some sort of like prank call. It's like absurd. <laughs> so they decided to expand into a more recreational type of park. They stocked the ponds with fish to attract anglers for fishing tournaments and decided to put in a mud-bogging track. Good old wild and wonderful West Virginia fun. Yeehaw! <laughs> they brought in bulldozers to sculpt the track, and as they started digging into the earth, they began uncovering Native American artifacts, pottery, arrowheads, all sorts of remnants. So, being good people, which they definitely were, they immediately stopped the bulldozing and brought in a team of anthropologists from Marshall University and Concord College. The anthropologists begin to dig and uncover the ancient graves of children. Many children. Child after child after child. When they had uncovered 13 bodies of children, they stopped the excavation and reburied the bodies where they had been found. The anthropologists would estimate there were upwards of 3,000 graves on the fucking property. 3,000. It's, it's mind-boggling. Oh, my God. Now, remember back when the Shawnee had warned Mitchell Clay not to settle on the land, how the threats were ominous and strange, and that the Shawnee weren't even using the land? It's suspected an entire village had been decimated by disease there before settlers even made it to the area. It was a darkly sacred place, a place of immense tragedy, a massive graveyard on an incredible scale. And that's why the Shawnee didn't use the land. And that's why the Shawnee didn't want the Clay clan homesteading on it. It was a sacred burial place of unimaginable importance and reverence. And what's also haunting and tragic is that this was most likely a disease brought from Europe by settlers, something like smallpox that spread out to the tribes, reaching them before they had even made actual contact with European settlers. Oh, so sad. Gaylord White was stunned. He decided to just close the park, let nature retake it and grow up over the rides. Just let it be. Let the land rest and heal. But there was an immense interest in the place. Ghost hunters, spooky freaks like us, historians, the morbidly curious, they all wanted to see it. So the Gaylord family decided to start giving tours of the property. Documentarians and ghost hunters flocked to the place. 
Discovery, the Travel Channel, National Geographic, Scariest Places on Earth have all featured it in episodes. When the Discovery Channel was filming their episodes, a crew member wandered into the abandoned ticket booth, only to have the door shut on her, locking her inside. She struggled and struggled to get out, and the strangest part? There is no lock on the door. Never has been. It's just a push-open door. When they finally got her out, she was so distraught, she had to be taken to the hospital. That is just so fucking scary and creepy. Scariest places on Earth claim the energy was so dark and overwhelming, it made them physically sick, and they refused to film there at night. The seats of the circular swing are said to sway and move on their own, and when you put your hand by them, an icy breeze can be felt, even on a windless summer day. While they won't say which swing the little girl was on when she hit the truck, they say people somehow instinctively know. They're drawn to it. Gaylord, who still lived on the property with his family, he did some basic annual maintenance on the land, using a tractor to cut back the fields. But he said he always felt like he was being watched and claimed he would often spot a little girl from the corner of his eye. But when he turned, she would vanish. Until one day, as he rode along on the tractor, she appeared directly before him, then climbed up onto the tractor seat with him. Terrified, Gaylord leapt off the tractor, telling the ghost child if she wanted it, she could have it. He left the tractor sitting there in the field, where it remains to this very day. Later, he moved a huge boulder in front of it to ensure it wouldn't be taken, so that the little girl could have it, for he thinks she really liked it. I don't know... It it seems kind of sad to me. Like, maybe she wanted a ride, you know? I mean, it's pretty boring just sitting there. He should have rode her around, gave her a good time. <laughs> I know. Visitors hear people laughing, and audio recordings often reveal the sound of giggling children in the distance. Others hear the chants of Native Americans. Some smell the sweet scents of caramel corn and cotton candy, hot dogs and funnel cakes. Shadow figures are seen, especially on the Ferris wheel. The sounds of carnival music can be heard, and faces appear in the windows. A local historian says she visited the park as a child, and while swimming in the lake, a hand reached up from the depths and grabbed her leg, pulling her down under the water, though she could see no one in the water there below her. As she was yanked down into the depths, her father saw the commotion and leapt to save his drowning daughter, literally pulling her up by her hair. Later, as an adult, inspired by this terrifying event, she researched the history of the ponds and lakes and uncovered newspaper clippings from the 30s that exposed the tragic drownings that had occurred there. Gaylord Jr., the son of the owner, claims the ghost of a little girl in a ruffled dress, covered in blood, from head to toe, approached him. He was frozen in terror, unable to move, as the little girl just smiled and strode away. And now, perhaps, there are two more ghosts, for both Gaylord Sr. and his son, Gaylord Jr., died while still living on the property. While Gaylord Sr. died of colon cancer in his 80s, Gaylord Jr. had a massive heart attack in his early 50s. 
It's said that Gaylord Jr. had 27 heart attacks while living there. That's fucking crazy. Jewel, Gaylord's wife, who now runs the park, says she was watching security camera footage and saw the safety lock on the Ferris wheel open and shut, which she believes was the spirit of Gaylord Sr. because he was always obsessed with safety and the Ferris wheel. And back when the Ferris wheel was running, he was always checking the safety locks to make sure they were functioning properly. Jewel says her husband had always wanted the park to be safe for both the living and the dead. Jewel also claims she encountered the apparition of a Native American warrior in her house, but she felt no threat from the figure at all. In fact, the encounter felt positive, as if the ghostly apparition approved of her being there. Jewel now lives on the property alone. Or is she alone? Sounds like there's a lot of ghosts to keep her company, including her own husband and son. Yeah, I mean, God, I wonder. So so she's still there right now. I believe so. And you can go there and take a tour, which is on my bucket list. I'd love to if I ever get out to the East Coast. Yeah. I mean, God, you got two bucket list uh, items now, a clam bake and some clam fritters and Shawnee Amusement Park. Have you ever been to Um, a clam bake? So it's so funny because so I was born and raised in Rhode Island, left for about 10 years, but I'm back now and have been back for 10 years. Um, I'm like embarrassed to say this, but I being this longstanding Rhode Islander and having been to what I thought were clam bakes, I've never been to a clam bake. Like if that's what a real clam bake is, number one, I didn't know that. Number two, we just use clam bake now, at least like most. I could be, you know, speaking way out of turn and there are people that like know what a real clam bake is, but like we kind of just use clam bake as like a, you know, it's- Make some clams. Yeah, or like just like a seafood feast kind of thing. Like, Mm. you know, like you say barbecue or cookout. It's like a clam bake if it's like a seafood one. So yeah, it's great. I was reading or um, listening to all those details and I was like, God damn, like seaweed layers and the the steaming with the rocks. Like that's now I I mean, I want to do one of those. I got to like look into this more and see how I can get a clam bake going and maybe... I, I really do want to go check out the uh, location of Rocky Point because I don't think I've ever been there. I'm So the weird thing about Rhode Island, uh, aside from all the weirdness we talked about in this episode, is because it's such a small state, you kind of like get, it's like almost like the state becomes bigger because you just, uh, I'm not explaining <laughs> it properly, like you just get into this mindset like, I'm not going to travel to like other parts of the state because, you know, I'm just this, you're like a small, it's like a, the epitome of small townness, but like small uh-huh. stateness. Um, and then kind of in our defense, right? Like most small pockets of Rhode Island have so much stuff to do. Like even just staying in my town, there's, you know, tons of 
parks and um, the, obviously the ocean and tons of beaches and you know you get kind of stuck in your own little in your own little place. Um, so I don't think I've ever been there and I'm totally I'm like not only am I going to do this but I'm going to do it soon so that I can report back to you and and maybe a uh, comment to some of our listeners and, and tell you what I find. Oh, I'd love to hear about that. It's I found it interesting that all these weird rumors like uh, gypsy curses, Native American burial grounds there that have pretty much been debunked. No one ever talks about the ghost of the little girl. Like you think that would be the major thing. I mean, a little girl was fucking murdered there by her own yeah. father. Yeah. That's what crazy. I would be thinking you'd be saying. I know, especially because like we seem to love little girl ghosts. I mean, our most mm-hmm. famous little girl ghost is Mercy Brown. I mean, Mercy Brown, even though she was thought to be a vampire, people say she's now a ghost and her spirit haunts the cemetery in Exeter. Oh, um, yeah. yeah we should do that someday oh oh we can tell i the first novel that i wrote was about mercy brown i researched her for like three years i know everything there is to know and i've been to exeter uh, to the chestnut hill baptist church uh cemetery numerous times i actually have a documentary that uh came out a year or two ago uh, about american vampirism that they came to Rhode Island and did a segment on Mercy Brown and I spoke on it. So maybe we can attach it to the show notes or something. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah. You'd think like, I mean, God, it seems like the little girl ghost of the Shawnee, like Shawnee amusement park has taken off a lot more than our little, our poor little Rhode Island ghost girl. (laughs) I know. Poor little Rhode Island ghost girl. I mean, both of them had some pretty brutal, tragic endings. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be killed by your own father while asking for a handkerchief to make a doll yeah. from, it's just so brutal. It's uh, awful. Ugh. I don't know, the circular swings death, though, that's just, I mean, The fact that those circular swings sounds, came back, can you the, believe that? So creepy, so creepy. But I also couldn't help but think about the poor delivery truck driver. Like, I mean, we've all yeah. been there, right? Like you're driving a truck there. No, I've, you know, I've never accidentally. No, <laughs> not accident. But like, you know, when you've like rear-ended, uh, you right. hit a parked car because you weren't paying attention or you're driving a, a a U-Haul and you like stop short yeah. because you realize you don't have enough clearance. Like what a horrible, horrible oversight misjudgment to back up into that. I mean, I don't... Part of me is like, how do you miss that? Like, well, they needed fences. That, I mean, <laughs> that was like, <laughs> it's it's whoever designed the amusement park's fault for yeah. not having a fence around that. That's that's fucking crazy. Yeah. So where are those? Are those so those swings are still there? Part of those the swings are still there's pictures of them. Google it. I gotta check it out. Photographs, and I'll put I'll put pictures on Instagram of them. I and feel like really creepy looking. I feel like you know how we do the great. Well, you do the great like images that go along with each episode. Like I feel like the image for this episode should just be the swing. It's That's like, exactly what I was thinking. There we go. That's like totally. perfect. Oh God. So creepy. So what are your thoughts on ghosts? Like uh, you believe in them or not? You know, short answer. No longer answer. No, but I want to. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I'm the same way. Um, we go to haunted hotels for a vacation. Like if we'll be if we're randomly someplace, we'll just Google haunted hotel. 
but I've stayed in some of the most famous ones. Uh, I stayed in the National Hotel in Nevada City, California, and it's people say it's the most haunted place on earth. I mean, but they say that about everything, don't they? They say, yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, all the all the TV shows have been there, and all the ghost hunters have been there. And people say that there's a piano plays at night, and that you can smell cigars in the lobby, mm. and uh, it's one of the oldest hotels in California. It opened in. 1856 wow and uh, a woman was murdered in room 48 and uh supposedly if you stay in that room which i did not do bloody handprints will appear and disappear in the wall yikes and there's a little girl too of course we love the little girl ghost and uh supposedly a little girl did die of sickness there and wow. people say they can see her skipping ropes outside it wow and i have to say when i stayed there it was incredibly creepy and terrifying. Yikes. But not because of ghosts, because there was mold everywhere. Ooh, and the God. place is literally fucking falling apart. There was like Yikes. parts like roped off that you couldn't walk in and stuff. Hallways that like were dipping down and the floor moved. Good but grief. I heard they've completely renovated it and fixed everything up and that it's really beautiful now. So okay okay well i've told you before you've got to go stay at the stanley i got married at yes. the stanley hotel so we are also fans of the haunted creepy hotels uh did not see any ghosts there my husband does claim that he felt a, a strange presence grip his arm but uh nothing beyond that um talking about like creepy energy the lizzie borden house has like yes. real creepy energy I like heard very that very just off-putting and there's there's definitely an aura about the place um but yeah yeah i gotta i love to stay there too we yeah. stayed at the delta king which is a 1927 uh uh steamboat in sacramento oh that's and, cool uh, it was really cool it just it was just fun you know old time steamboat but i guess yes. people have been dumping bodies in the sacramento river just forever so there's like a, a million stories about <laughs> All the, oh my god but there's still there's still dumping bodies in that river so goodness but my favorite is the mendocino hotel uh in mendocino california mm. it was uh it's an old was an old brothel and it's built in 1878 and it's right on the ocean and they have like this little kind of boardwalk it's like antique stores and bookstores you ever watch murder she wrote oh god no years and years and years ago but not anytime recently well, in the opening scenes, she's riding her bike through this little beach town. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fictional town that's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be a Maine or somewhere in New England. But um, they actually shot it there in oh, the nice. town of Mendocino because it's really classic looking. Awesome. Uh, and they say that there's a succubus that preys on men sexually there. But is I've read, I think, um, women. <laughs> what is it? Colin Sweeney? Colin. The barber? No, no, it's um he's a true crime, like a historical true crime author. Oh, cool. Uh he has a I'm gonna try to Google it like while we're talking, but I we can add it after too. Um haunted book, Colin Dickey, maybe. Uh let me see. Yes. Colin Dickey, Ghostland, an American history in haunted places. You've got to read it. It's so great. Uh, he like he basically covers the whole country and um, talks about all the most haunted places. And I read about that brothel in that book. I'm like 95% certain that's where the book that I read it in. Another good haunted history that kind of like covers a whole range of 
places and eras is um, it was actually nominated for a Stoker Award in the long non long nonfiction category this past year, uh, Invisible Women, and it's like haunted, you know, female ghosts, witches. Uh, it's very cool, and there's a lot of true, you know, a lot of that stuff is mixed in with true crime because where did the ghosts and the legends come from? You know, wrongful, untimely deaths. Right. Yeah, we'll have to check it out. Get some uh, later episode content. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like the historical stuff. We got a historical one next week. Uh, I'm not going to give anything away, but it's going to be really a rootin' tootin' fun, good time. Very good. Haunted or uh, historical stuff next week, but uh, for this week, that that does it for the amusement park ghosts, the hauntings, and the murders. We hope you enjoyed this spooky episode as much as we did recording it. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for more tales of murder and mayhem on Murder Coaster. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com Ciao for now.